Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Today we're pivoting back to some of the most important microeconomic issues like unemployment and the labor markets, and we'll continue our conversation on American healthcare and health policy. Uh, our guest today is a true expert in labor and health economics, Professor Matthew Nodowitikdo is an associate professor of economics at Northwestern University. He is also co-editor of the American Economic Journal Economic Policy and holds various other positions as distinguished journals and research institutes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. Just quick question, Casey. I don't think we can. He- can we hear ourselves in the uh, in the headphones? I think it's like a little bit weird. I think I think we do. Okay, got you. Um, and would you mind f- uh, recording this in mono? That's possible. Awesome. Thanks so much. So you're you're saying we don't need the headphones? Okay, okay. that's fine. I'll okay. do that. That's that's more comfortable. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'll 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 just put it on once in a while and and see. Awesome. We can kind of I I'll just cut that out later by myself. Don't worry. Awesome. So your research is quite interdisciplinary between labor and health. Would you mind first giving us a quick overview of some of your research goals and your recent work? Sure thing. Yeah. So I think of myself as equal parts labor economist and health economist. So I do work on labor markets, including studying the long-term unemployed, people that have been out of work for, for a long time. I've studied unemployment insurance. In healthcare, um, I've primarily focused on public health insurance programs like Medicaid. And going forward, a lot of my research is going to be both focused on Medicaid as well as some of the consequences of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, why don't we start with labor markets before going to uh, health policy? So what what does one study in, in labor economics? Sounds like a very obscure term for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, I... Um, you know, labor economics is a big field. Um, I, I focus primarily on issues related to unemployment, unemployment insurance, um, and long-term unemployment, as I said. And that's what I've been working on basically since since graduate school. Um, unemployment is a very, um, very popular topic in labor economics because it's, it's one of the most longstanding questions in labor economics, which is why are there workers that are searching for work but are unable to to find a job? Why can't the labor market adjust in a way to make it easier for those workers to find a job? Um, why are some workers, why do they take so long to find a job after they um, become unemployed? And so those are the questions that have kind of motivated me. And the approaches I've taken have been have been varying. Um, in some cases, I've run experiments, uh, for example, um, constructing fake resumes to send to employers to understand how they perceived people that were unemployed um, and I've also done research using um, different data sets that track people over time. Um, so you can see from starting when they're unemployed to when they find a job and then what job they have after that. Uh, so what are some of the interesting findings? Because you just mentioned the, the example of you sending some uh, fake resumes to to employers. And I, I read that paper. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so the motivation for that project was um, was the observation that's that's been made by many um, researchers over the years, which is that for workers that have been out of work a long time, they have um, a smaller chance of finding a job than workers that are newly unemployed. Economists call this duration dependence. And the idea that economists have in mind here is that it's possible that 
the longer you're out of work, uh, the harder it is to find a job. Um, that it that being out of work longer has a genuine causal effect um, on your likelihood of finding employment. And um, that's an interesting idea, but you know, a, an alternative interpretation is just that people that are out of work longer are just different from people that um, are newly unemployed. They might have characteristics that make them particularly unattractive to employers. Um, and we thought that we'd be able to try to distinguish between these ideas by running an audit study. Um, and an audit study is a study where you construct um, resumes that are not real people, um, resumes that you construct at random, and then you send those resumes to real job postings around the country. And then employers look at those resumes, and sometimes they call, um, you know, they, they call the phone number on the resume and try to ask um, to set up an interview. And that's the outcome we look at, is whether uh, that resume got, got called back. And then we can see how the likelihood that that resume gets called back varies with characteristics on the resume. And the characteristic we were most interested in was how long that person was out of work. So the specific question that we could answer was for the same person with the same characteristics on their resume, except for the fact that one of them was out of work longer, were they treated differently by employers? Maybe a more intuitive way of saying this is like, were the employers discriminating against people based on how long that person was out of the labor market? Before we dive into more specific questions about unemployment, just want to quickly ask you, what are some of the general factors that could influence unemployment? And also, why do we care about unemployment so much? Are we talking about unemployment too much in this country? That seems to be, you know, in economic data or in daily conversations, people are constantly talking about this thing. Right. So the unemployment rate is definitely in the media a lot as one of the key labor market indicators. I mean, that comes from the fact that it's one of the things the Federal Reserve looks at, for example, when they set monetary policy. Their mandate is both to uh, maintain inflation as well as to promote full employment. And historically, economists have thought about full employment in terms of um, in terms of the unemployment rate, once the unemployment rate gets low enough, then the assumption is that everyone who's wants to look for who's looking for work is ultimately going to be able to find a job. And so, if unemployment um, gets too high, then that's something the Federal Reserve is going to look at when they're setting policy. Um, you know, the, these days there's some. I think there's a little bit of debate among academics about whether the unemployment rate is as useful as it's been in the past as an indicator for the overall health or strength of the labor market. And the reason for that is that here we're, we're at a time when unemployment rate is, is basically been hovering at near record lows for quite a while. And yet I think there's still a you know fairly widespread perception that the labor market still doesn't feel like it's been roaring back for everybody. Um, and so that's led to some discussion about maybe instead of focusing so much on the unemployment rate, um, both policymakers at the Fed as well as researchers maybe should focus on other labor market indicators. So one of them that's that's emerged is the labor force participation rate. So to distinguish the terms here, unemployment rate is the share of the people that are um, employed or looking for work that are unemployed, that are not currently um, able to find a job. The labor force participation rate is the share of the total population that's looking for work. So some people are not unemployed um, but don't have jobs, but they're not actively looking for work. They could be staying at home taking care of children. They could be caring for elderly relatives. They're not unemployed, but they're not working. And there have been long-term trends in the labor force participation rate that has caused some economists to think that 
that's a number that we also want to be tracking um, as well as the unemployment rate. That these two measures together can give us a better, more comprehensive sense of the overall health of the labor market. Uh, you just mentioned how uh, we are at a record low unemployment rate, but labor market doesn't feel so good. Uh, so, h- how healthy is the U.S. labor market right now? Are there some of the fundamental structural challenges we're seeing? That I think that's a hard question, and um, and I think that that's really something that the research is uh, is still trying to catch up to what may be a new reality, as I was trying to describe. The yeah, it's true that the unemployment rate's at a record low, but wage growth um, has been somewhat lower than you would expect given how low the unemployment rate is. And that's what's caused researchers to think about coming up with other ways of measuring the strength of the labor market. Um, and I, I think that you know the truth is that this is still, this is still an area where we, we, we need to learn more. Um, I think the Federal Reserve has a similar challenge, which is if they just focus on the unemployment rate, that could be missing some of the picture. And that's why, I mean, I think that some of the focus on labor market research right now is just understanding which of these measures is going to be most useful for policy purposes. Uh, I just want to quickly connect to our economy today. So the number of Americans filing applications for unemployment benefits recently dropped to the lowest in nearly 50 years. So according to the Labor Department report released on April 18th, uh, it's declined for five straight weeks and dropped to a seasonally adjusted uh, 192,000 people. So what are your thoughts on unemployment benefits? Um, do you any do you take any stance on on issues related to um, how much and whether we should give people unemployment benefits? Sure. One of the one of the projects I started working on in graduate school was was on unemployment insurance and thinking about both how to design unemployment insurance to protect workers, um, but also designing it in a way that it doesn't cause workers to have too much of an incentive to remain unemployed for longer if they're in fact able to to get a job and return uh, return productively back to the labor market. And that's a hard trade-off. Um, and what we were interested in in our research was that maybe that trade-off changes over time. Maybe that trade-off is different when you're in the middle of a recession versus when times are, um, when times are good. Um, it's possible that, for example, during a recession, the idea that unemployment insurance is providing an incentive for people not to go back to work. Maybe that's not so important during a recession because during a recession, jobs are very scarce anyway. And so it's gonna be hard for people to find jobs regardless of their UI benefits that they're receiving. And so that's what we were interested in, which is thinking about how to design unemployment insurance so that it works well both in good times and in bad times. And um, and, and that, you know, that research I think was pretty interesting. And, at, and as we wrapped up the project, we, we learned about other countries um, like Canada, for example, they actually change the generosity of their unemployment insurance benefits depending on the health of the labor market. So when un- when the unemployment rate um, goes up and the country goes into a recession, the UI benefits actually get more generous. And I think that seems pretty intuitive to people. Um, you want to give workers um, you know, UI benefits for longer when it takes longer to find a job. But it was interesting to see this connection between research and policy is that, you know, this is, our research was suggesting that that might be a desirable feature of UI, and, and some countries seem to have actually been going in that direction. It, it seems to me so often that the debates about things like unemployment benefits spiral into very ethical and normative debates, uh, like the left saying, you know, we need greater equality, the right 
<clears throat> saying, you know, we need more personal responsibility. So, so I want to hear your thoughts uh, on, I guess, maybe the greater questions here. Like, how do we distinguish whether an economic issue can be resolved on empirical analysis, data-based research? Uh, and I, I don't know, are, are those normative discussions about labor economics helpful? So I, I think in the case of unemployment insurance, I think that I think that the research has had a, a, a pretty useful impact on thinking about the different ways that you might design UI. Um, in the US, unemployment insurance is designed to has two, has two main features. First is how generous the benefits are per, per week that you're unemployed, for example. So you get a weekly benefit for every week that you're unemployed, and that weekly benefit is roughly tied to um, your wage, what you were earning when you were employed. So if you were earning more, um, you're generally going to qualify for higher benefits. So that's one policy decision. The other policy decision is how long you pay those benefits. Um, in the U.S., like in most countries, you can't receive those benefits forever. They're, they're time-limited. So you have a maximum duration that you can receive benefits. In normal times, uh, in most states, when, you're not, when we're not in a recession, um, that's 26 weeks. So you can receive UI benefits for 26 weeks before they expire, and then you then you um, don't receive UI anymore. And if you still haven't found a job, well, now you might become pr pretty um, cash constrained because you're not receiving those weekly benefits anymore. Um, during the during the re most recent recession, the so-called Great Recession, um, policymakers perceived that the recession was so severe that 26 weeks wasn't going to provide enough protection for workers that were unemployed, and so um, so through a number of, of uh, policy changes, though that 26 weeks was extended to 99 weeks um, under under President Obama. And that 99 weeks was thought to um, provide better protection for the workers who were unemployed for a very long time, what I, what I called the long-term unemployed. So there are a lot of workers who lost their jobs during the recession and took them a very long time to find work. And so by extending UI from 26 weeks all the way up to 99 weeks, you, you prevented a large number of unemployed workers losing um, a lot of income um, while they were still searching for work. And, um, you know, I think that that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a trade-off that economists can contribute to, which is that UI provides benefits to workers by preventing them from experiencing a lot of financial strain when unemployed. And that has to be balanced against the cost of unemployment insurance, which is that it, provide, it could provide an incentive for people to remain out of work. And what I see as one of the main values of, of labor research in this area is just to quantify that trade-off and then let policymakers decide exactly how to navigate it. Uh, you mentioned how uh, during the Obama administration, uh, they extended the unemployment benefit period because of the recession. Uh, what about other special situations like uh, the recession, for example? A lot of people are saying automation will have a pretty big um, factor on you know, low-skilled workers, does that mean in the near future we'll see another this type of mass displa displacement and, and unemployment and, and uh, we'll have to extend the benefits for a little bit longer? I think that's an interesting idea. The, the unemployment um, literature that I'm talking about here focuses on business cycles, so focuses on booms and busts and recessions versus expansions. Um, the economists call those cyclical factors, cyclical changes. There's another um, another set of factors that I think policymakers want to be concerned about, which is not, not business cycle factors or these cyclical factors, but what economists would call structural factors. These are longer running changes 
in the labor market um, that might call for policy. So one of them, as you suggested, is automation. So the idea that uh, robots or computers are um, routinizing certain job tasks previously done repeat by, by people but now can be done by robots. Um, and that's that. I think economists would call that a structural factor because this is not happening in a short period of time. This is happening gradually over a longer um, range range of years, and that might you know because it's a structural factor and not something related to business cycle. It might call for a different um, policy response than the business cycle. The way we you know we we've had a lot of business cycles. <laughs> we've never had widespread unemployment due to technology, but that's something that could be coming, and then you want to prepare for that in terms of policy. What I would say is that automation is not the only structural factor that's caught the attention of labor economists. In addition to automation, um, there's also, I think, been an increasing recognition of the labor market consequences of rising trade, particularly with China. Um, so my advisor in graduate school, one of my advisors was David Otter, and he, along with a number of co-authors, have done work on what they, what they call the China shock, which is that starting in around the early 2000s, trade with China, um, between China and the U.S. has rapidly increased. And the kinds of products that were um, exported from China and sold in the United States um, require, um, require labor as an input, and that might therefore cause certain workers in the U.S. to experience um, negative labor shocks. They might become more likely to be out of work and that might cause that might call for policy responses. It might cause for it might call for policies that help workers adjust to that transition. Um, you know that could take the form of training programs. It could be um, it could be uh, assistance for people that are displaced from their jobs due to trade. Um, and I think that that's also just a really active area of research right now because I think the sense is that since these are structural factors that are emerging over a long period of time, it might there might be different policy tools that you'd want to develop rather than unemployment insurance, which is something you can kind of tailor to the business cycle. Uh, do you have any stance on things like uh, universal basic income, or do you have any other uh, thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I find basic income very interesting. I um, As an economist, I, um, I'm drawn naturally to thinking about the trade-offs involved in basic income. One thing I like to tell non-economists um, uh, about basic income is that it, it, in practice, would likely not look that different from what economists call a negative income tax. A negative income tax is, um, is a policy where if people earn nothing, they receive a fixed amount of money, and as they earn more, some of that fixed amount of money is basically taxed away. And practically speaking, this is how I think a universal basic income would be financed. Everyone would receive their basic income amount, but as you earn more money, you would then pay a tax which would contribute to the financing of the basic income amount in the first place. And that tax you know, might be very low for relatively low incomes and get steeper um, as, you get, um, as you get higher and higher up into the income distribution. But it would basically have that 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 key feature. So it's a it's a transfer to people that have low incomes that's gradually taxed away as you have higher incomes. And so when I when I describe it like that, I think that that's a useful way of starting to think about basic income because negative income taxes actually have been studied by labor economists for decades. There's been a lot of creative experiments done in different cities in the U.S. Other countries have experimented with negative income tax systems. 
So I think that's kind of why I find the discussion about basic income exciting is that a basic income program in practice could look a lot like policies that have been tried out in elsewhere. Um, and so we're not really going in blind, if that makes sense. So what are some of the past research? I, I mean, I know they've done experiments in, in Canada, certain parts of other European countries. Are we seeing any um, data-based sort of empirical? Yeah, I, I want to talk about one of my own papers, actually, yeah, yeah, which please. I'm really, which I think is one of my favorite papers. And it's a paper where we studied lottery winners in Sweden. Um, and the, uh, the really neat part of this project was that we merged um, decades of data on lottery participants. So how many lottery tickets they bought, um, whether they won or not, if they won, how much they won, how it was paid out. Was it paid out lump sum or was it paid out in installment prizes? Um, in, in the U.S. you can choose, but in Sweden it's, it was one or the other depending on what lottery you participated in. And we merged that data to the equivalent of IRS data in Sweden, so administrative tax records. Okay, so what does this have to do with basic income? Well, basic income is giving someone money, lump sum, and then seeing what their labor market responses are. You know, do they work more? Do they work less? Do they start a business? Do they change industries or occupations? And we were able to study that in our data on lottery winners. Um, and what was what I think was so um, neat about this project is that since it's a lottery, um, lotteries, as long as they're not corrupt or random, the winners are um, equivalent to the non-winners in every way, except for the fact that one of them won the lottery and the other didn't. So in, the fr in, in um, what social scientists would say, we can analyze this in the framework of a randomized trial, where the randomized trial was randomly giving some people money and not others. And then you could see if you randomly give some people a modest lump sum of money, um, how do they respond? Do they work less? If they work less, how much less? Do they change jobs, switch industries, things like that? So we were able to study all of this very comprehensively over a very long period of time. Um, and what we found was that on average, people did work less, um, but the, I would say the effects were pretty small. People didn't really stop working entirely. Um, and to our surprise, they didn't systematically change, jo change jobs in terms of the kind of work they were doing. We had a hypothesis that after you won the lottery, you might you know, choose to do the kind of work that you're more passionate about because you didn't need to work for money as much, but we didn't see much evidence of that. People just sort of took a small break, they took longer vacations, they worked a small amount less. And so I, I think this is useful for thinking about universal basic income programs because I think, that, um, I think that a likely outcome of these programs is that it might cause people to work less, but the effects are probably not going to be very large. So just to extrapolate that conclusion, does that mean something like universal basic income could work? It's just, I mean, we're, we won't see as drastic of a change in terms of uh, what people will do. And yeah, there's a the, some of the discussion I've seen about basic income is that it's going to cause people once they're getting money for nothing to just quit working entirely. Um, and I would say that our results point pretty strongly against that. Um, people did work, uh, they did work less, but it was a little bit less, not drastically less. And that, that conclusion wasn't that surprising to labor economists, I would say, because, you know, in, in the, the economists called, call what we're trying to estimate here wealth effects. If you give someone a little bit more wealth, how much do they reduce their amount of work? How much do they reduce their labor earnings? And those wealth effects have all, have historically for decades been estimated to be pretty small. Um, people take that wealth, they use it to buy things, 
and they use some of that wealth to be able to afford working less, but they work only a little bit less. And our, our research was strongly consistent with that. Do you think an idea like universal basic income is physically possible from, from a tax perspective? Um, because you just said that we have to tax the, the rich a little bit more, right? Yeah, I mean, it. I like I like phrasing it as a negative income tax because I think that just draws attention to the to something that I think is sometimes overlooked in the basic income debate, which is exactly how it's going to be paid for. Um, and by calling it a negative income tax, you emphasize what is the structure of the taxes that are going to be needed to be added to pay for the full basic income program. And um, you know, I think I don't think it's impossible because I think as long as you're willing to pay for it through tax increases in certain parts of the income distribution, you can pay for a full basic income. I, I think a lot of economists have a reaction that if the purpose of basic income is to provide income support from for a relatively low income population, um, there would be more targeted ways of doing that. So you could take away the universal aspect um, and therefore you need to raise far less tax revenue. Uh, my sense is that this quickly gets into the realm of politics, not economics, because it's possible that the universality is exactly what helps make it politically feasible. And if you just make it too targeted, um, you know, just giving um, income support to people that have low incomes, that might be actually harder to um, sell politically than something that's universal. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, so it quickly gets outside. Like I said, it gets outside of economics into the realm of of, of politics, but you know, I, I do sense that there's a folk wisdom out there that programs that are just for the poor are poor programs, and the universal aspect might make it actually more feasible, even though it comes with a much bigger price tag. Uh, do you do you have any other um, radical proposals like uh, universal basic income that you may like to introduce us to? Because because it seems like a lot of people are proposing some very radical changes. Yeah, I'm not entire. a radical person by nature. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, some of the radical ideas I have in um, in labor market and, and healthcare, I guess as, as radical as it gets. So on, on healthcare, um, I, I would say my most radical idea is probably um, getting rid of the tax, uh, preferential tax treatment for employer provided health insurance. So treating it as something that's taxable. I think that that would go a long way towards helping contain the growth in healthcare costs in the US, which, um, you know, as, as you probably know, healthcare uh, continues to grow very fast um, in the US. And one way of trying to keep those costs under control is through reforming the tax system. On labor, um, on the labor market side, I mean, this isn't a radical idea, but I've long felt that um, just as a, as a matter of policy debate, we spend a lot of time talking about the minimum wage. So right, you know, right now there, there's there's on the on the Democratic side there's a, a fight for 15. So trying to raise the federal minimum wage to 15 dollars an hour, um, and there's you know the debate about how quickly to do that. Um, when you know when would we get there? Should we phase it in over time? Should we allow it to be different in different states? Because 15 dollars an hour is going to feel very different in Mississippi than Seattle. Um, so I guess my, my radical view on this, which is not that radical, but um, I think that the minimum wage, you know, raise, increasing the minimum wage makes sense. But if we increase the minimum wage, I would prefer that it's combined with a commitment that that minimum wage gets indexed to inflation. Currently, what minimum, currently the way minimum wage policy works is that 
we increase it, but then we fix it in nominal terms, which means that inflation gradually erodes the real value of the minimum wage. And the one consequence of that is that we just have to keep debating the minimum wage because then eventually once inflation erodes the value, then we need to increase it again to keep its value uh, in real terms relatively constant. And so I have a, I have a view that at the margin, we talk a little bit too much about the minimum wage relative to other labor market policies. And so my hope would be that after increasing it, if we index it to inflation, that then we can start moving on to talk about other labor market policies that I think are more important. Yeah, I totally forgot to ask you about the minimum wage um, issue. So besides um, unemployment benefits, uh, minimum wage, are there any other big, hot um, labor markets debates that you think we could talk a little bit more about? Um, I, I mean, I think, the, I think the minimum wage is one of the uh, issues we're talking a lot about right now um, because the value of the minimum wage has been eroding over time, um, and also inequality has been growing a lot in the U.S. in recent decades. Inequality has been growing a lot in, in other developed countries as well. The U.S. is unique in just how um, just how large the inequality growth has been, particularly at the very top of the income distribution. Um, but I think the, the, the focus on the minimum wage is, is trying to make sure that workers in the lower parts of the income distribution are still able to um, experience some meaningful wage increases over time. Minimum wage maybe is, is a somewhat blunt tool to do that, but it seems very politically popular right now. And so that's why I was that's why I'm proposing um, making sure that we're not constantly talking about it by indexing it so that its value doesn't erode. Um, if you graph like the value of the minimum wage over time in real terms, it looks like a sawtooth. It goes up and then inflation erodes it. Then it goes up and then inflation erodes it. And I think that'd be a I think it'd make a lot more sense to me if the minimum wage was was just indexed, just like we do for Social Security benefits, so that as um, you know, as the cost of living goes up, people that are earning the minimum wage are automatically protected from it. Um, so I, I know some states have begun experimenting with this, but I think it's something you could think about at the federal level as well. It seems to me that um, economic debates inevitably drift to political debates. I mean, we were talking about basic income, and you said it would be a little bit more politically salient if we make it universal, and and and, um, and we were talking about minimum wage, and, and that's sort of something people debate a lot, a lot of times on a more political spectrum. So how do we make sure that politicians are a little bit more aware of like evidence-based, data-based research that are proven to be effective, and everybody could just agree with that do you, do you think that's, that's ever possible yeah or? that's a that's a good question I, um, I I do have hope that um, that we can move towards policy making that's more based on evidence I mean picking the minimum wage is not great as an example here because it is so politically charged um, but I think other I think there are other areas um, of labor market policy where you know evidence can be informative and maybe since it's not so politically charged that evidence can be useful so I mean one specific example that that I'm interested in is um, is thinking about how to address the consequences of some of these structural factors we were talking about, long-term changes in the labor market. How do we design um, programs such as vocational education, apprenticeship programs? Um, how do we support community colleges? I, I, I don't think any of these areas are, are nearly as politically charged as the minimum wage. I think there's people on both political parties that are interested in kind of making all of those programs work as well as possible. And I think that's where evidence 
from research can come in to try to inform uh, which kinds of training programs actually work, um, which kinds of community colleges are actually do a good job at um, increasing people's uh, earnings and employment opportunities. And so I, I'm excited to support more research in that going forward. Uh, I, I guess this could just sort of um, go along the lines of that trend of thought. How do we make sure that I mean we can come up with our own thesis as you know just the general public because we read articles and data from the left and from the right and we think oh they both make sense I mean uh, the both the liberals and conservatives have great viewpoints that could logically justify whatever they're arguing um, so if if we don't have an economics degree how do we make sure that that we can come up with something um, that are logical uh, but it's also evidence based but but also something more centrist i guess i think that's hard i i i'm still trying to get better at communicating my own research to a broad audience um i i i got interested in studying economics because both i was interested in in understanding how the economy works but i also thought economics had potential to um to improve policy so i i had both of those motivations internally but you know it's it is hard to explain research to a broad audience but it's something that as an academic i'm trying to get better at and um and I, i'm trying to make i'm trying to do concrete things in this direction by by actively trying to write papers for a broader audience not just for an audience of academics and there are outlets there are journals there are um you know there are blogs that i think do a good job do a good job with this my one of my frequent co-authors, um, Craig Garthwaite, he's a colleague of mine at Northwestern, and he's a, he's a professor at Kellogg. And um, I, I view him as a pretty good example on this. He takes time to explain his research um, to both policymakers, to, uh, to bureaucrats. Um, he recently testified before Congress and wrote just a beautiful summary of how he thinks about a particular healthcare topic that he's an expert on, which is the pricing of prescription drugs. This is very politically charged, and we're constantly debating about how to, how to, um, how to try to make sure drugs aren't too expensive, that people can afford them. Um, and you know, I think this is something where evidence can help uh, shape the debate, and I, I really um, admired the time that he took to try to explain in common language, but language that is drawing on his expertise as an economist, to understand these trade-offs. I mean, you know, prescription drugs, maybe they're too expensive, but if we, uh, if we regulated them more or capped their prices, um, there's going to be trade-offs. Uh, maybe we'd have less innovation. Maybe we'd have less blockbuster drugs that really help people. Um, I think part of the goal of research is to just help policymakers recognize those those trade-offs. And I like to say that you know Craig and I are a great team because we come from completely different parts of the political spectrum, but we can still work together productively as economists. And maybe that's a good template for how to influence policy as well. Uh, that's a great transition to health economics. So I want to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on our current healthcare system, health policy. Uh, first of all, what is your way of studying health economics? I know you. Um, work with Professor Amy Finkelstein from MIT quite often, and she yeah. she's, takes a very quantitative and unique approach uh, to addressing, uh, to studying health economics. Yeah, I so when I was a graduate student, I, I started out in, mostly in labor economics, and then I gradually shifted to have both research on labor and healthcare. And this is really one of those examples of just being 
inspired by someone older and more experienced. So Amy Finkelstein is, is an influential health economist and ended up being one of my advisors in grad school. And now, now probably about half of my projects are in, are in healthcare. Um, you know, the healthcare system in the U S is, is, is really complicated. Like, like president Trump said, like who knew it could be so, so complicated. Um, and I think sometimes that creates a little bit of a barrier to entry for researchers because it's a little bit intimidating to start studying something so complicated and unwieldy. And so you have to, as a researcher, you have to sort of break off some pieces to make some incremental progress. You can't study the whole healthcare system all at once. That's just not going to be, not going to be feasible. Um, and so, so the way that I've done that is, um, is I've tried to develop expertise in what I call studying, studying the non-health aspects of health insurance. So, um, so when I teach when I when I teach the undergraduates at Northwestern, I, I teach a health economics class for undergraduates. One of the one of the lectures is I emphasize the fact that you know health insurance does a lot of things, many different things. It, it may improve your health; that would be great. Um, but really, what health insurance is designed to do is um, is not primarily based on improving your health. It's based primarily on protecting you financially from the financial consequences of an adverse health event that causes you to need healthcare. So you know we don't want you to go to the hospital and then suddenly face a gigantic bill that then hangs over you for the rest of your life, um, and uh, and so I've tried to focus my research on studying the consequences of health insurance that are not the health consequences, and that's not because I don't think that's interesting. It's really that I thought that there were a lot of other people already studying that, but where there was less attention, I thought was looking at the financial consequences of health insurance. How does health insurance protect you financially? Does it improve your financial well-being? Does it reduce your risk of filing for bankruptcy, going into foreclosure? Does it prevent you from accumulating lots of unpaid medical debt? And so I have a couple papers that um, I think are really motivated by this idea that health insurance um, has both financial consequences as well as potentially health consequences. And I've just tried to focus on the financial part because that's where I could sort of carve out a niche and, and develop research that could provide some, some new answers. Uh, so what are some of the non-health aspects of healthcare? Well, what are some, your, some your, uh, Yeah, so I focused on the financial part as well as I focused a little bit on the labor market part, but I think the financial aspects have been, um, I think it's been easier to make progress as a researcher. And the reason for that is that researchers have been um, increasingly getting access to some really fascinating um, financial data in the form of consumer credit reports. So as, I hope all of you are doing on a regular basis, checking your credit report, uh, making sure that you're not a victim of identity theft. But researchers have been able to do the same thing, which is to get access to these credit reports for a large number of people and then merge it to data on health insurance coverage or merge it to data on people that experienced a health event like a heart attack or a car accident. And as, as, um, as people can see when they get their own credit report, the credit reports are incredibly detailed and paint an incredibly detailed portrait of your financial well-being because you can see unpaid bills, you can see debt that's gone to a collection agency, you can see whether there's a lien or a foreclosure or if you filed for bankruptcy, um, you can see your credit card borrowing behavior. And so we can take all of these variables together and then see how they're affected um, for people that are either insured or don't have health insurance at the time of a, of, of a big health event that causes them to go to the hospital. And so this research, I think, has been useful in helping quantify the financial benefits of health insurance because you can look at people that are insured and people that are not insured and um, compare how these outcomes on their credit reports evolve over time. So one of the findings that 
um, was really most striking to me is that for people that are uninsured, if they end up going to the hospital unexpectedly, on average, they rack up thousands of dollars of unpaid medical debt. And that's um, that's medical debt that they would have not accumulated had they had health insurance at the time of their hospitalization. Uh, since we're already talking about uh, sort of the uninsured people, uh, you wrote this journal article in 2017 titled Hospital as Insurers of Last Resort, and you found that each additional uninsured person costs hospitals approximately $800 each year as well. So um, what, what else have you found about sort of the relationship between the uninsured, the hospital, the healthcare system? Yeah, the um, the the paper that you just mentioned came out of a um, conversation that we were having with um, the American Hospital Association, which is um, how that project was possible. So the American Hospital Association uh, surveys hospitals every year and gets detailed financial data from them. So what was their revenue? What were their expenses? How many people showed up? How many beds did they have? What was their investment? Things like that. So, um, and they do that for almost a, almost every hospital in the entire country. And they've done this for a number of years. And through a unique data sharing agreement, we were able to get data from them so we could study how hospitals themselves are affected by changes in public health insurance. So, something I liked about that paper was that you know there's there's a lot of work studying the effects of health insurance policies on the people themselves that are the beneficiaries of those policies. That's the most natural thing to look at, right, is that after the Affordable Care Act, millions of uninsured individuals got access to Medicaid who would otherwise have been uninsured, and that could have transformed their lives in many ways that you could measure in things like credit reports or, or other data sets. Um, and what we were trying to do, which I thought was, was creative and understudied, was sort of saying, well, insurance doesn't just affect the beneficiaries themselves, the formerly uninsured, but insurance could also affect the bottom line of hospitals. That's why we called it hospitals as insurers of last resort, because um, you know what we recognized is that in a lot of cases, hospitals are on the hook for caring for uninsured people. That's through, um, you know, through a variety of factors, but one of them is the fact that, um, is that Congress basically has required hospitals to provide care for the uninsured, even if they can't pay for it. That's called uncompensated care. So the hospitals provide that care because they're required to provide emergency medical treatment for people, even if they don't have health insurance. The hospitals can try to collect money from those individuals, which is often not going to yield a lot of money, but the hospitals have to provide that care, but then don't get paid for that care. And what that means is that then if policy makes it so that the uninsured get access to health insurance and are not uninsured anymore, that could also affect the hospital's bottom line. They might not need to provide as much of this care that they're not getting paid for. Um, and I and so so the paper, what the paper goes through is just in a variety of different data sets and different um, different research strategies, just trying to document the extent to which hospitals actually are indirect financial beneficiaries of policies that expand health insurance coverage. And at the end of the, the paper, you know, we, we have this discussion that um, I think kind of connects a little bit to the politics of public health insurance expansions, which is that, you know, in the United States in recent years, states have been debating whether or not they want to expand Medicaid as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, largely speaking, a lot of blue states expanded Medicaid, a lot of red states did not expand Medicaid. So clearly this is a political decision. But what we found interesting is that in all of these states, whether red states or blue states, the hospital associations often are lobbying quite hard to expand Medicaid. 
And I think that's consistent with what we're trying, what we ended up developing in that paper, which is that why would the hospitals in all of these states be fighting hard to expand Medicaid? It's that the hospitals themselves are some of the beneficiaries of the policy. It's not just that uninsured individuals get access to healthcare, which could be very valuable to them, but the hospitals could also benefit financially because now they're no longer providing care to uninsured individuals that they're not really getting, getting paid for. And I think that's just a really interesting um, aspect of basically healthcare financing in the US, which is that the government is involved in healthcare in many different ways. Um, but the ways that they're involved sometimes has these interesting consequences where the hospitals themselves then end up caring a lot about whether there's uninsured people in the local area or not. Um, so I was, I, was very, um, I was very happy with how that paper came together. And I think it has been influential in getting people to recognize more that um, hospitals are an important, in an, in, an, in an interesting way, hospitals are really a part of the safety net because for people that are uninsured, the hospitals provide the care and they have to provide that care for people that require emergency treatment. And I think that was just understudied. Um, and, and still, you know, still we could use more research on that. Uh, I mean, the U.S. health care system is so complex, right? It's so hard to, div to, uh, to understand. So um, is there any way that we could simplify it without fully dismantling it? Well, like, what are some of your thoughts on how we can fix the American health care system? As I know that's very, very broad yeah, question. It's a fair question. It is very broad, and it's one that maybe health economists don't spend enough time thinking about. Um, <laughs> because like I said, we're trying to carve out parts of the healthcare system that we can study and make progress on as, as researchers. And maybe we don't spend enough time synthesizing all of that together to have some clear sense of you know, what we should be recommending as in terms of overall changes to the healthcare system. I would say what what I'm interested in for the next couple of years is continuing to understand um, what are the ways that the U the the U.S. can continue to move towards universal healthcare coverage, making sure that there are individuals that are not insured are not uninsured. Um, because after the Affordable Care Act, the millions of people that were uninsured got access to health insurance, um, mostly through the Medicaid expansions. Um, but there's still millions of people in the U.S. right now that are uninsured. And I think that thinking about what are the uh, best policies that can help address the fact that there are still millions of people without health insurance, I think that's interesting. I think that's something that policymakers should pay attention to. Um, in terms of other, you know, other large-scale changes to the American health insurance system, um, it's, it's really, everything is so interconnected. It ends up being very, very complicated. And so that's probably why I don't have any clear recommendations. I think that um, developed countries have all moved towards making sure that people have health insurance coverage and the U.S. can go in that direction. But exactly what that coverage looks like, is it, um, single, is payer, it a single payer system where the government is paying uh, doctors and hospitals? Is it a partially privatized system? Is it a fully privatized system? Do people have health insurance through their jobs? These are all really difficult questions. I mean, I'm interested in this going forward. Actually, I presented, um, I've been visiting Princeton this week and last week, and, um, and yesterday I presented some new research um, on Medicaid in South Carolina. And we're interested in this, um, in this policy decision about when the government provides public health insurance directly, should they also be, as in a single-payer system, directly paying doctors and hospitals, or should the government be paying insurers, private insurers, who then write contracts with doctors and hospitals? So I, th I see these as like two sides of a spectrum, 
where you can either go from a system of single-payer health care all the way to a system of privatized health insurance. And I think you know, one goal of research in health economics should be helping understand those trade-offs. So that's what I'm interested in going forward, um, because I think that this debate about where to be on that spectrum is, is going to be a debate that we're going to be continuing to have for quite a while. Have you reached a temporary conclusion yet on, on what kind of system the U.S. could possibly adopt? No, no, we haven't. I, I, <laughs> I, we're we're in, in South Carolina, so just as a little bit of background, in South Carolina, the way the Medicaid program works, like in, in, in many states, um, is that if you enroll in Medicaid, most of the people on Medicaid, this is the public health insurance program for um, low-income individuals in the U.S., um, the way Medicaid works is that you sign up, but then you have to pick a plan. You have to pick one of five health insurance plans. So what the state of South Carolina does is they provide public health insurance to low-income people, but they're not directly paying doctors and hospitals. The state is directly paying these five health insurance plans who then work with providers to um, offer access to health care. So I call this a, basically like a privatized system because the, federal, the state government is paying money to the insurers, and then the insurers are working with the doctors and hospitals. And that's what we're studying. Is we're, we're studying you know, how well is the state doing in that system in terms of are they offering enough choice? Are those choices good? Are these plans any good? How should the state be managing the competition between the plans? Um, you know, people have choice. They can choose which plan they think is best for them. And these plans have incentives to compete against each other to try to bring in more people into their plan and not their competitors' plan. And so it's a, I, I call it like a system of managed competition between the plans. I think this has some intuitively appealing features. It gives the plans incentives to try to increase their quality to get more customers. And it also gives the plans an incentive to reduce costs because the state's paying them a fixed amount of money, more or less, for each individual in the plan. And so if they can succeed in getting their individuals to take healthy behaviors and not you know, engage in wasteful healthcare spending, that's going to directly increase the bottom line for those insurers. So I think this system has some appealing um, and intuitive, in, intuitively sensible properties, but the question is just in practice, is it actually delivering high-quality care at low cost? And that's what we're trying to learn about. You, you were just talking about the cost of healthcare. Why do Americans spend so much money on healthcare? Because you, you wrote a paper basically saying that rising income is unlikely to be a, the main driver of rising healthcare expenditure as, as a share of GDP. So is it just expensive because we have to pay the researchers, the pharmaceutical companies, the doctors? I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, but I've read some papers by health economists that I, um, you know, that I admire, and they seem to come to the conclusion that we do pay a lot more for doctors and specialists in the U.S. than in other countries. Um, we also have pretty high end-of-life spending that seems pretty distinct from other countries. Um, and it's also, for whatever reason, the case that in a lot of different parts of the healthcare system, we pay just higher prices than other countries. So I think these are the three factors that seem to be pretty important. Um, you know, on the on the first one, which is the high salaries for um, doctors and specialists in the healthcare system, the w one way I think about this is that it, it it's possible that this is quite closely related to the fact that the U.S. just has much higher inequality across lots of occupations and industries than other developed countries. And so, if you look at, for example, if you want to be in the top 1% of the income distribution in the United States, that's a much higher amount of income than, than every, every, other, uh, every other developed country, basically. And if you think that you know, you'd like to have doctors um, 
to be the kinds of individuals that have the skills, training, and ambition that um, would give them the opportunity to earn very, very high incomes. It's it seems almost it seems almost natural that doctors would be paid a lot in the U.S. compared to other countries because our highly our high our highly compensated people in the U.S. in lots of areas get paid higher than in other countries, and so. If we ended up reducing the compensation of doctors uh, by a meaningful amount, it would certainly save on healthcare costs, but it might also pretty drastically change the selection into who wants to be a doctor. And that's a hard trade-off for me to think through because that might end up affecting um, health outcomes, might affect the quality of the healthcare workforce. And so I think that's a that's a difficult uh, that's that's a difficult trade-off for me to think about. Um, we were talking about universal basic income, all those radical proposals for uh, labor markets. So I wanted to go a little bit futuristic for um, the health economics as well, because as technological innovations advance, uh, many was say that was you know soon see biologically and genetically engineered humans, and and you know so how do you envision the future of healthcare? You know biological engineering, the pharmaceutical industry like how how do all those things come together do you think there will be a new overarching framework that will be needed uh, to look at the healthcare system do you do you see it being completely disrupted by tech that's, that's really interesting i um i think to try to to try to narrow the question a little bit i'll i'll talk about something i've i've heard um health economists thinking about which is personalized medicine so the idea that Healthcare treatments in the future, due to technology, um, you know, both computational technology as well as maybe genetic engineering and pharmaceutical innovations, like all of these things, might make it easier to treat people um, individually in a very specific way that's different than how you would treat other people. Um, and I think that's really—I mean, that sounds really fascinating to me as an outsider. Um, but I think it also raises some interesting questions about how the healthcare system might evolve to handle that. Um, and the, the thing that I think economists are most well-suited to thinking about is how health insurance markets themselves um, might have to adapt to that. So in an era of widespread genetic information and personalized medicine, um, I think a, a, a concern that, that uh, health economists, I think, are going to have is that um, health insurance markets might be quite disrupted. So here's here's one um, here's one metaphor that might be useful, which is um, which is auto insurance. So uh, auto insurance companies have started to roll out these features, which basically track your driving. You know, are you speeding a lot? Are you uh, are you just like a reckless driver in general? And if you're like a really safe driver, according to the thing that's mounted on board in your car, if you're really safe, then you're going to get a discount by the auto by the auto insurer, right? Now this is a I mean it's a huge privacy issue of course but like people people are um at least open to thinking about this because if, if you yourself are a good driver and know you're a good driver and you know that you're going to get big discounts by showing that you're a good driver then you have an incentive to install this thing and you might save a lot on your auto insurance um and for the people that are not good drivers that are really reckless uh they might have to pay a lot more um and i think that's like a super interesting um innovation in the auto insurance industry but what what it means if you walk through the logic that i'm trying to lay out it means that you might see more inequality in auto insurance prices as a result of this information and so to move that over to healthcare if you think about technological change that makes genetic information uh widespread available to individuals 
um, there's a there's a potential concern that I think is a natural one that many health economists would have is that that can also lead to personalized pricing or more personalized pricing, and that that could lead to you know meaningful increase in inequality in um, in health insurance prices, health insurance coverage. So the government's not being actively involved. What could happen is that people who genetically are very very healthy are maybe going to be much more attractive to insurers than people who genetically are at risk of very big diseases. Um, one, one example that's actually already been in the in the literature is um, Huntington's disease, which is a, uh, a disease that's completely genetic. It's a degenerative disease where if you have it, then um, you know, in, in your, roughly in your 40s, you, have, um, you experience big declines in health that are very expensive to deal with. And so there's a perfectly predictive genetic test that's available. And for people that take that test and then know that they have hunting, that they're going to eventually suffer the symptoms associated with Huntington's disease, what you see in the data is that those individuals start purchasing insurance contracts that will insure themselves against long-term care expenses, like nursing home use, home health care aids, things like that. So basically the genetic test gives them information that then helps them make a decision about what's the right insurance product for them, given the health expenses they're going to have to face in the future. So that's just one example. Um, and that's a simple example because the genetics of that disease are very simple. But as we learn more about the genetic determinants of different diseases, you could imagine this is going to be just a very disruptive force in the health insurance industry. And depending on how you regulate, what are the kinds of things that health insurance companies can and cannot discriminate against? Um, it might have really big implications for how stable those markets are going to be. Oh, that totally makes sense. Awesome. So uh, you are visiting, for instance, Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies this week, and, and the Griswold Center really aims to narrow the gap between research and policymaking. So I want to ask you your thoughts on this. Have you seen significant progress being made bridging the gap between research and policymaking? In other words, you think about those big questions like what we were just talking about, the Huntington disease example. Do you think policymakers are thinking about those? Do you think it's being translated and channeled to them? Yeah, I, um, I'm involved in, um, in a new organization called JPAL North America. Um, the, the PAL and JPAL stands for the Poverty Action Lab. It's a relatively new organization that aims to support randomized experiments of safety net programs, social insurance programs in North America. So I've worked with them to run a couple of different randomized experiments. And something I admire about JPAL North America is that for all of the studies that they're involved in, after the academic study is completed, um, and you know there's a paper that's going to be published in an academic journal, they write, they, meaning the staff at JPAL, write a summary that makes the findings more easily digestible to policymakers. And then through their network, they circulate it to actual policymakers. You know, they, they have connections with people in state and local governments, um, uh, people in D.C., like at think tanks. And so I think that's a, a really good model for dissemination of research, which is having people who have enough expertise to digest the research findings, but then also have the skill to then summarize them in a way that's actually useful for policymakers and provide some actionable um, guidance um, towards policymakers. So, um, you know, I think that's that's something that I think has has improved. I and mean, they have they have some really successful examples of this. Not, not that close to my research, but one that I know best is um, is actually a program called Becoming a Man in Chicago. It's a intervention for at risk 
students who are at risk for either performing badly in school or turning to crime. Um, and the intervention is a uh, intervention that provides um, basically some cognitive behavioral therapy as well as some mentorship to hopefully reduce the likelihood that these um, that these students either drop out of school or engage in violence. And it was studied as a randomized experiment and the results looked quite promising. And so the way that policymakers in Chicago reacted to that is by just massively expanding and scaling up the program. And I thought that was a great example of research influencing policy. Um, so before we end the interview, I wanna ask you just couple quick things about your personal experience. Uh, I found this interesting line in the honors awards section on your resume. It's 1994 blockbuster video game championship store <laughs> champion in Columbus, Ohio. So I want to ask you about this. What is this? What's the connection? Yeah, here? I played a lot of video games as a kid. I think if I was um, if I was a kid now, I'd probably be distracted by the possibility that someday I could have turned into a professional video game player. That wasn't really a job that was around when I was a kid, but now, you know, there are people e making millions of dollars, yeah, doing esports, uh, streaming on Twitch. Um, so yeah, so Blockbuster um, ran a bunch of video game tournaments all over the country, and I went to the store and ended up beating everybody else that went to the store. <laughs> it was Super Nintendo. It was three games. Um, I think NBA Jam was one of them. Donkey Kong Country was one of them. So I, my brother, my younger brother, and I played a lot of video games as a kid. Uh, I think I would admit that he was even better than me, but we were both pretty good. Um, and so I put that on there just to show that I was doing something other than succeeding in school uh, <laughs> as a kid. I don't play that. I don't play a ton of video games now, although I do have two young kids and um, we're pretty open to allowing them to play video games. I, th I, you know, I think the research on this is not so clear. So I think in the absence of research, you can use your own, um, you know, you can use your own gut reactions. And I think that video games um, sometimes can be just a waste of time, but sometimes I think they can be both educational and mentally challenging. And so that's why we're pretty open to letting our kids play video games as well. Uh, so after, did video games push you to uh, majoring in computer science in MIT when you were an undergrad? or that, So my background, before I, um, before I went to graduate school in economics, I studied computer science, computer engineering, both at the undergrad level, and I also got my master's in computer science from MIT. Um, I think the interest in video games might have played some role in that. I never really had interest in becoming a video game designer. That's a really hard job. But I've always been very interested in computers, um, and I've been interested in, in computer programming from basically from high school onward. Uh, and so maybe there's some connection there. Well, so, and then what drew into labor and health economics? Why not doing uh, software engineering or continuing in? That's a good question. I, I've always been interested in economics. Um, even in high school, actually, I in my dissertation in graduate school, I uh, one of the dedications in the dissertation was to my high school AP English teacher, uh, Ms. Sider, who um, who taught uh, micro and macro and you know helped us prepare for the AP economics exam. So I liked economics for a long time. The interest in computer science was really just that I thought that that was great broad training to succeed in whatever I wanted to do, and I really do believe that pretty strongly. I think computer science skills, computer programming skills, knowledge about algorithms, I think those skills are very portable and can be useful in a lot of different, um, a lot of different careers. Um, but my, my intellectual interests for a very long time have always been related to, um, to economics. I mean, where that comes from, it's hard to be, it's hard to have like a ton of self-knowledge about this, but I, I did grow up in Columbus, Ohio, and Ohio 
um, like many Midwestern states in the Rust Belt, suffered through declining manufacturing for quite a long time. And so um, probably seeing that around me and seeing how uh, people that had been earning good good wages at manufacturing plants for a long time um, then suddenly get displaced and have str they struggle to return back to the workforce. I think I just I found that interesting and I found that worth trying to understand better. And that probably led to my initial interest in labor economics. Um, and you know the interest in healthcare, like I said, that's that's more just. Um, uh, one of those things where it depends on who you're around. You know, I believe it. I believe you're influenced by your peers. I, I believe you're influenced by the people that by by teachers that, um, that that teach you, and that's I think what caused my interest in healthcare. Uh, what do you think is the the quality or vision that sort of carried you thus far? Because uh, you you've done extremely uh, visionary might be too grand of a word, but very interesting and fascinating research on labor and health economics. So. Uh, how do you come up with those ideas? Uh, how do you build those models and, and figure those questions out? Yeah, I'm asked by graduate students a lot, like how how do you come up with research topics? And um, I think it's a good question to ask. Um, the thing about research is that um, no one tells you what to do. Um, you know, I don't I don't have a boss that I come into the office and then the boss says, you know, here's what you're going to work on today. We, you know, as a as a researcher, you have to come up with your own topics, and it's not easy. I mean, sometimes you just keep thinking about things that that you think are interesting, but you can't make any actual progress um, on. And so, I think, um, you know, I think that one of the one of the challenges in having a career in research is that you have to continue to come up with ideas that are both creative, interesting, and policy relevant, but also feasible. Um, you know, things that you can actually do, right? You know, I'd, I'd like to run a randomized trial of the entire healthcare system, you know, <laughs> across the whole country, but like that's not feasible. I can't. I have to. I have to pick off something that I can actually make progress on, but is still going to be at the end of the day something interesting and useful to other researchers and possibly policymakers. And that's, um, you know, sometimes that feels a little bit like threading a needle. Um, is f figuring out the things at that intersection. Um, so I, what I tell what I tell graduate students is, you know, my ideas often don't come from reading other people's research papers, but often come from reading things that people are writing that are not researchers. So reading newspapers, reading magazines, reading blogs. You know, sometimes you read, um, and also reading outside of economics. So, for example, when I was a graduate student, um, I was reading law review papers so reading things that lawyers were working on and one of the papers that i came across was work by elizabeth warren um formerly uh professor at harvard law school now senator and as well as presidential candidate possible future president and elizabeth warren had been doing a, a bunch of fascinating work about medical bankruptcy um which is the idea that there's individuals who are going bankrupt um, filing for bankruptcy because of an illness or an injury or some health event, and maybe, maybe this is related to being uninsured, and um, and I you know I wouldn't have come across that work unless I was reading outside of economics. Um, Senator Warren's not an economist; she's a law professor. Uh, but this was a really I thought this was a really interesting and policy relevant topic, and I thought that economists could also contribute to it. Um, and so that's what started my interest in the financial consequences of health insurance and it also led to my interest in like continuing to work on topics like medical bankruptcy what would your advice be for people who want to be economists in the future so i think that 
um, economics is increasingly becoming an empirical field, meaning that a, a, a larger number of papers analyze data. Um, they, they do statistical analysis. They, um, they use algorithms. They use econometrics. Um, and so I think those skills are important to develop as an undergraduate student, for example. Historically, economics has been a very mathematical field, and so oftentimes people get advice to take a lot of advanced math classes. Um, I think that's fine, too. Um, I didn't do that because I took engineering classes instead of math classes. But I think going forward, I think the advanced math is actually going to be less important than the advanced statistics or, or I guess, what we now call data science. So being able to work with very large data sets is, I think, a very useful skill to develop and I think can help you be a successful empirical economist. I also have a view that it's helpful to just know about fields outside of economics. I think that's where a lot of the most creative ideas are is that they, 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 they lie at the intersection between economics and other fields. That could be economics and psychology or economics and sociology, or in the case that I was talking about, like economics and the law, kind of trying to draw on some of the things that law professors are interested in. And so I think another way to prepare for, for a research career in economics is to just figure out what you're interested in outside of economics and see if you can combine it intelligently with economic reasoning. Uh, sounds great. So uh, after all those years of um, studying health and labor economics, what's your biggest takeaway? And, and I mean, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, I want to ask you at the end, what's the punchline here? Your takeaway, your punchline for health economics, policymaking, anything? Well, I mean, one one punchline that I'm that I that I, I really do feel strongly about is is trying to get policymakers to pay attention to evidence. There's a bunch of great evidence being produced, and I think that can be useful for labor and health policy. Specific policies that I'm interested in going forward is how to get to universal coverage um, in the United States. What I'm specifically interested in is um, on, on this, which we haven't talked that much about, is on um, just getting the states that have not expanded Medicaid. What are, what are ways of getting those states to expand Medicaid so that we can further reduce the number of uninsured individuals? Um, should this be a carrot? Should this be a stick? Um, and I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. On the, on the labor market side, um, I would say the, the punchline that I'm most interested in is really related to the future of work. There's this widespread concern that there's not going to be jobs, the robots are taking over, and I think that that calls for policies that try to figure out ways um, to help more workers build the skills that they're going to need to have to deal with the future of work that where some jobs are going to go away, such as truck driver, but other jobs are going to come up that don't even exist today, such as managing all of these automated robots. And so how can we design programs and policies to help workers succeed in that in that new future of work environment? Which were the structural changes that we previously talked exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. That, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today in the studio, Professor Nodowitigdo. Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on policypunchline.com, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Rate us, review us. Um, really appreciate you listening in today. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs.
Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.